Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, even just like going back through and making notes because that's the type of gay I am. I made notes for today. I wanted to make sure I covered everything because I could talk about this show for probably six hours and still not get to everything. So I want to make sure I'm going to hit my important points. And I was already like, oh, yes. this musical, this musical. There was a point where I was preparing for this episode where I was like, okay, I'm going to need some sort of Harry Potter chocolate type situation with the Dementors to help me get through some of yes. the trauma. And so I have brought this is my staple. I don't know if you can see it. It's a 2% reduced fat chocolate milk box <laughs> that always does the trick. I have my nice warm cup of flavored coffee here. Hopefully that keeps me in a happy place. You what know, flavor? Uh, it's hazelnut. Oh. Hazelnut. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are talking about Next to Normal with another three-namer. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Ryan Leslie Fisher. Hi. I knew I was going to like you when I saw that you had Leslie Nope as your profile picture. Well, I think it, I identify as a Leslie, a fellow Leslie, you know. Sure. So, Do you like waffles? I mean, I'm just putting it out there. Waffles are fantastic. I'm, I'm definitely more of like all the bacon in the, the restaurant. Bacon with a side of waffles. Yeah, bacon with a side of waffles, for sure. I get it. Uh, you are an actor. I am. Thanks. Do you recognize me? <laughs> uh <laughs> But like you're a serious actor. I um, and I by that I mean you do videos on Instagram. 
<laughs> TikTok. I'm a TikToker. Uh, yes, but like I, you're doing really funny work, and I want I want to make sure to like talk about it here at the beginning so that we don't run out of time. Yeah, of course. I uh, you should definitely check out my TikTok, Dandy and Friends. Um, I I take myself very seriously, but I'm essentially just like a 1700s uh, aristocrat. <laughs> flamboyant aristocrat and so i'll do anything as long as it's gay and uh uh, no yeah i I studied theater and so i I was definitely more of a shakespeare type guy very serious actor i want to take myself seriously but i'm I'm such a smart ass that like i always find myself back around to comedy you can also check out my work on the lgbt sketch show enemies of dorothy which is uh all queer all comedy you know and dandy the the tiktok character is comes out of my foray into musical theater, which took uh, many years to actually get over. Because when I was in theater school, there was the sh- like the serious actors, and there were the the foolish musical theaters, and and of course <laughs> we, we were always sleeping with each other. Where do you, else do you find all the gay men? Is the musical theater? Uh, thanking those uh, several boyfriends from that musical theater program, uh, just I, outside of Toronto thanking them for their education and what is now a breadth of musical theater fandom I have been in for what feels like my whole life. But um, yeah, that's sort of what leads me to being such a big fan of it. I'm so happy that you're here and I'm thrilled that you are jazzed about this show. Uh, Obsessed with Next to Normal. I'm so glad that you hadn't done it yet. And I don't know, I was a bit intimidated, to be honest, about coming on here and like, uh, what do I know? What do I know? But I, I'm a fan. I'm and none of us do. I'm certainly more of a fan than a musical theater historian, sure. and I'm not even a very good musical theater gay. Like I, <laughs> I have some of my niche shows that I'm obsessed with, like uh, Hedwig. I think we were all obsessed with Rocky Horror. You're very glam in your tastes. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, yeah. I think that's glam indie type stuff and then next to normal is definitely like on a, a another level like i i discovered it i so i i didn't know what this show was about i got no warning i went to see the last leg of alice ripley's tour at the four seasons in toronto which uh, you're the first canadian on the podcast congratulations oh thank you hey eh? oh wow i gotta <laughs> represent uh well for everyone at home listening uh i am sitting on my pet moose and i'm wearing uh, a mountie uniform uh how do you like my hat it's a good hat right it is it is it's a little out of the frame in terms of our zoom call it's, right it's, now it's, but. it's really big but uh yeah so i saw uh the show in toronto and a buddy of mine took me uh, he had an extra ticket. He said, let's go see it. He didn't give me any warning at all. And uh, so I was just like completely taken by surprise. So I saw the Superboy and Invisible Girl merch. And I was like, what the hell is this dumb shit? Like, <laughs> what am I getting myself <laughs> into? Superheroes? I was like, this is Lava a- Girl? Exactly. What is this? The shark Boy? <laughs> <laughs> and so like already I'm like, whatever. And the fourth season is like an opera house, right? So like it's a oh, strange wow. space. Huge. It's huge. It's a strange space. There's these grannies. Uh, they're all grannies. We were the only young people there. And they're in their pearls and their furs, you know, so it's this vibe. And uh, <laughs> basically, we were we were young going to see theater. And we, we had these bottles of Vex. What is that? Oh, it is just the biggest garbage. You know, uh, it, it came from a long line of like Zima or Smirnoff 
ice coolers. Oh, okay. uh, we call them white claw these days. I don't speak alcohol, so I apologize. Oh, well, no worries. That's not anything but good. I think <laughs> I think that's good. That means you're uh, probably very healthy. <laughs> well, instead, I have my reduced fat chocolate milk. Well, if not we're going perfect. to our Harry Potter uh, chocolate frog, if that's turning towards these Vex bottles, then that's a problem. I, that think. Is- I think you can turn towards the chocolate milk. But yeah, and so we had two one liters of this and we were just splitting it. So uh, picture this, you know, uh, two flamboyant musical theater lovers in the alleyway, downtown Toronto, behind the Four Seasons. And we're just downing this before the show. And I thought it was like a little treat. It's like, he got the tickets. I'm going to get us a little boozy booze. We're going to have fun. This was a bad idea because the emotions that come come right up when you're drunk. And so flash forward to the second act where my head is in between the two old ladies in front of me sobbing. It was a really special experience to go into the show, which like my family has a lot of history of mental illness, which we're going to get into, uh, which really made it super personal. And it it is so well done. And it's so topical about a piece of, our society and culture right now, that was just stunning. Now, in talking about Next to Normal, we kind of have to first talk about the history of rock musicals, which I think most people would say it's Hair. Hair is the first rock musical in musical theater. Bye Bye Birdie, probably the first musical with rock and roll. Okay. But in terms of being like a rock musical, it's Hair. And Hair, very kind of loose plot, It's all about the music. It's all about the vibe. It's all about celebrating this time and this people and this belief system. Yeah. Which is the tradition of rock musicals, in my opinion, even through Rent. It also tends to make them not age very well. Hmm. They become a little, what is it called when you like put stuff in a a time capsule. They become a time capsule for the moment in which they're created. It may be too early to say this, but I feel like Next to Normal breaks the mold there. I think that with its subject matter and its approach to it, it will stand the test of time. That That's going to be really interesting to see because today, compared to when it came out, like it's certainly just as relevant. And so... I don't know, maybe if we crack the code of mental illness and actually like make these moves um, mm-hmm. towards uh, understanding and and um, getting proper help for and respect even for people suffering with mental illness like this. And people are going to be like, oh, the, the original Broadway costumes are so old fashioned. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's just it. Maybe maybe the orchestrations will change. Maybe the design will change, so on and so forth. Yeah. But the approach that they landed on was certainly one that was cultivated and crafted. Uh, from what I understand, the composers, Tom Kitt and Brian Yorkey, first met, first started working together at the BMI Angle Layman Workshop, which is this like famous workshop we've talked about on the podcast before. Basically, any composing team that you may know post-1980s went to this musical theater writing workshop. And at that workshop, you create a 10-minute mini-musical. What they did at that workshop was this 10-minute mini-musical called Feeling Electric. 
And it was based on a segment that I believe Tom Kitt saw on a news program like 60 Minutes all about electroshock therapy. And they took the time, created that little 10-minute piece, and then they went their separate ways, kept working on different projects. Tom Kitt was a musical director. He started out as a music director, worked a lot. Um, I think he was the music director for Sherry Renee Scott's show Everyday Rapture, uh, among other things. Brian Yorkie had a theater company that was helping develop new work. So they had their own projects, but they kind of kept coming back to feeling electric and eventually decided that they needed to put it into a, a full musical. The first time that they wrote it and it premiered off Broadway, it got mixed reviews. There were some critics who thought it was a little disrespectful, to be honest, that they hadn't quite figured out the tone of comedy and trauma. And so they actually went back to work and rewrote it before taking it out of town in Washington, D.C. During that rewrite is when they honestly started focusing more on the family and less on the process of treating mental illness. Because Feeling Electric was very much a a criticism at the medical field in terms of how we over-medicate. And so their new approach was to focus more on the fallout or what happens to a family when this becomes part of their life. Mm -hmm. The title track, Feeling Electric, gets cut. And when it opens out of town in Washington, D.C., with pretty much the same cast, Alice Ripley was playing Diana still at that point, they found the tone. They they hit it the nail right on the head. And then it goes to and opens on Broadway and becomes a huge, huge smash. Mm-hmm. Critically adored. It wins the Pulitzer Prize for drama that year, mm-hmm. which only happens for a musical, speaking of... <laughs> Speaking of uh, lack of respect for musical theater, um, (laughs) that happens maybe once a decade, maybe a little bit more. But they recognized Next to Normal as the Pulitzer Prize winner for drama that year because it was the first time that a musical and then a rock musical at that had really explored mental illness. I mean, I can't think of another. Can you? No. No, this is definitely very uh, singular. It's got, it stands up above the rest and it's totally in its own league. And it sounds kind of, pardon the word, crazy because like to do a musical about being bipolar, people would think that's a terrible idea. Well, yeah, I, I mean, to do it's ambitious to do a musical about mental illness. When I have heard criticism about this show, it has come from an older generation. Mm. And that is not meant to be shady from my point of view. Mm-hmm. But I almost think that these types of things have been things that you just don't talk about, let alone make a musical mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. you know, and to put them so vulnerably on stage is not only confronting, but it, it might seem downright wrong for older generations. Yeah, I, I, I guess. Uh, but for me, yeah, I'm, like I said, going into it blind and seeing like it really striking a chord with me having experienced that. And mm-hmm. I think that's so interesting what you're saying about them shifting it to be more about the family and the fallout uh, and just the tone of that. 
because my like I grew up my father's schizophrenic my younger sister has um borderline personality disorder and so like a lot uh, you know my dad has bipolar as well so like a lot of these things they were like really that's why I was I was sobbing I just got there and then just like totally enjoying myself Uh, but like it was just hitting all of these moments so beautifully that are just like so true and so like that's exactly how it feels Mm-hmm. Fe- the, the the word I, I want to emphasize is feelings. Like that's mm-hmm. I, I'm watching it. I'm like that's exactly what it feels like. And so having that kind of representation is so great. To where yeah, I, I suppose maybe like older generations might. It, I could totally see that being like a, oh, it's impolite to talk about that. I mean, <laughs> when I was growing up, uh, it, they called it ill. My dad was ill, or mm-hmm. oh, dad's in the hospital again. Like there's code words for it and stuff. And so like. Even even growing up, like uh, it's very impolite and awkward, and I think we are just in the last decade, like really, <laughs> there's a lot of advocacy for mental health, and um, our generation is certainly the, the first to be like, no, it's okay to talk about this, and let's normalize it. And are you okay if I ask you questions about? Of course, yeah, I'm to- yeah, totally open book about it. Okay, so in terms of shame, meaning like feeling so horrible about something that you don't want anybody to know about it. How did your dad deal with his illness and how did you deal with your dad's illness? Like, did you accept it before he did? Um, well, and then let's get back about it to communicating what exactly was going on. Like I was 18 years old when my dad had like a episode and changed all the locks on the house and I got like kicked out onto the street in high school. And my mom oh kind of like came to the rescue and uh, she was living in New Jersey and we had family uh, just across the border uh, in Michigan. And so my grandmother, my aunt came and picked me up and, and you know, got my stuff and I was just moved out of his place. So and you were living with your dad? At that point, I was living with him. And, and was, uh, you, were, were, was your sister with you as well? Uh, no, she, uh, my, my sister, who uh, is also suffering from mental illness, has always been in like social services care. Oh, wow. uh, because, yeah, he, she's my half sister and, and he had her with a woman he met in the hospital. And so, like, there was oh really God. no hope for her. And so almost right away, she was taken away from them. Um, but so he he sort of had that episode. And my mother, we couldn't get a hold of her. Like, where is she? And she says, uh, she finally calls us around, like, you know, 10 o'clock at night. And she's like, I'm two hours away. I, as soon as I heard, I got in the car, I started driving. And so she sits down. And she's like, okay, I will tell you everything. Anything you ask, I'll answer honestly. And that was the first time I had a word for it. Schizophrenia. You're kidding. So up until 18, no idea. He was ill. And uh, like all the the pills and the everything, like they were just medicine. And he had been in the hospital a lot when I was a kid because he was, he was just ill, right? They didn't call it like mental illness. They just called him ill. So so much to where some people don't talk about it to where my grandparents didn't tell my mother until he had his first episode when so she got married not even knowing about this? She had kids with him, and she didn't know about this. And, uh, you know, it's uh, genetic, right? And so yeah, of like, that's where I, I relate to Natalie so much. Look, I'm already like... No, it's okay. It's, it's like you're worried about, like, 
I could go crazy, right? Like I see this and that could be me. Like we don't know yet. Oh, I, we know now <laughs> I'm fine. Um, <laughs> but like being 18 and, and learning that it, it, it was a moment for sure. But yeah. And so she already had my sisters who are twins, older sisters. And he, um, you know, he had a, uh, his first episode that she had seen and she's just like, what the fuck? She calls my grandparents and they're like, you know, we really didn't think it was our place to tell you. He was going to have to tell you that. And I was like, y'all came to the wedding. I'm having children with him. And so I remember asking, like, I was like, why did you have another child? Like, why was I born? If you, already, if you knew at this point. And she said, and it, it was incredible because I, they were divorced before I was, you know, aware <laughs> of things. I was just a little baby. And she goes, I was in love with him. And I'd never thought about that. I'd never, ever thought of my mom as being in love with my father, just because I'd always known them to be divorced and how hard and harrowing it was going back and forth, dealing with his illness and having a single mom and uh, my dad over the border constantly in the hospital and just not understanding. And so it wasn't even until then, yeah, like I said, that I even had a word for what it was. And so in, in a way... You know, I was an angsty teen and my dad sucked. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, as soon as I found that, it's like I aged in wisdom like 10 years. I was like, automatically, I forgive you. <laughs> like, um, what the hell could I ever hold any resentments for? Well, there's plenty of resentment. And <laughs> my that's, father, that's, that's a whole other thing. Um, but, it's almost like I just, yeah, just forgave him. I just like, I, I was able to have that moment and we have a great relationship now. My dad. That's wonderful. So, uh, and uh, my sister is a bit more harrowing, but um, you know, I think she actually has, a, 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 she's not handling hers very well at all. Uh, my dad's older and he's had his whole life to figure it out basically. And so, yeah, I mean, that's just like a roundabout way of saying that, I think. Well, that's, that's incredible. Thank you so much for being willing to share, truly. Um, because I think that, <laughs> no, no, but I'm serious. Because just because we don't talk about it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. And I think we work so hard to, even post Next Normal, we, we still work so hard to create this Instagram-worthy life that we call normal, that we believe is the goal hashtag goals <laughs> but by you being willing to talk about it and artists being willing to create things like this one of the most important things i walk away from this musical is realizing that what is normal what is what is real what connects us is our pain it's the fact that everybody yeah. has a story that will bring you to tears and most people have a story that will bring you to your knees and once we realize that that is what we all have in common then the beauty in life is that we still choose to love. Still we pay, we love anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and so thank you for being brave. And I hope that it inspires everybody out there as well to, <laughs> to be brave. Yeah, but that really harkens back to the, the show itself. Like that is that is what brought me to being a sobbing, blubbering mess with all of the fancy elder people. <laughs> And it's because, you know, they really do touch on it in a beautiful way. One of the hallmarks of the show is that we go through the show and talk through the plot and score. And so oh. please, please feel free to point out any of these moments where you're like, yes, 
I feel seen and heard. But before that, let's talk really quickly about the the Broadway season in which Next Normal opened. Because even though it won the Pulitzer Prize, it did not win the Tony Award. Hmm. I, I, I guess that's a good point. <laughs> hmm. It was actually a season full of musical theater variety. Here were the best musical nominees that year. Billy Elliot, which one? Next to Normal, Rock of Ages, Shrek. (laughs) Okay. Right? So you have everything from family-friendly to family dysfunction. And then that isn't even including musicals that didn't get nominated for Best Musical, like 9 to 5. So there was a lot of theater that season. Billy Elliot is what wins Best Musical. I'm interested in hearing, do you think that Next to Normal was robbed? No, no, not at all. Like, I don't think it's about that. This musical is not about the accolades that it has, not to me anyway. Mm -hmm. It won the Pulitzer, okay? Mm -hmm. That's what it should have won, and correct. I totally agree with you. And, And Billy Elliot is incredibly crafted theater. So, like, I'm more than happy that Billy Elliot won. Uh, the awards the Next Normal did win were very well-deserved. It won Best Score, Best Book, Best Actress. Mm-hmm. Which, speaking of, were you a fan of Alice Ripley before Next to Normal? I no, Well, this is a service to the show because I had no idea who she was. Mm-hmm. And so, like, to me, like, she's Diana. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, not really being familiar with her really let me just see her as this mom. That's that's beautiful. So I, on the other hand, obsessed with Sideshow. <laughs> yes. yes. So in high school, I was like the nerd that everyone said, what did you do on Friday night? And I said, I listened to Sideshow and read through the little CD booklet. Like that. that's probably what I did on Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> and I had never heard anybody so unhinged vocally in my life there's that moment in sideshow and you everybody can listen to the sideshow episode and enjoy all of the love that we give emily skinner and, and alice ripley but there's that moment on uh, in the tunnel of love number in the original cast recording where i don't know what comes out of alice ripley but she but she scream belts where is mine and it is the most thrilling and it's simply because it's so visceral Everything that is like coming out of her voice is coming out of her entire body, right? So I'm already in because of Alice Ripley. After Sideshow, she did a couple of things. She was in James Joyce's The Dead, which was this kind of weird uh, memory play with music. She was in the revival of the Rocky Horror Show, Touch Me. But then Next to Normal comes around and you're like, oh, wow. Finally, she has a role that seems like it was written just for her. And so I hadn't seen the show yet. Tony Award night comes. She wins her Tony Award. I'm like jumping up and down like the sweet little boy that I am. (laughs) Thrilled that Alice is finally winning her Tony. And now I'm going to play her speech because it was an experience. Yes. There's a quote in the Kennedy Center by John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Right now I'm like, I'm so happy for you, Alice. (laughs) I am certain that after the dust of centuries has passed over our cities, Mm -hmm. we too will be remembered not for our victories or defeats. Oh no. In battle or in politics. Oh, now I'm scared. But for our contribution 
to the human spirit. Now, I'm thrilled for her. And then by the end of the speech, I'm terrified of her. And I can't help but feel like she she is a, a very, like, visceral performer. And so I'm sure these emotions are always on the surface at any given moment. However, I can't help but feel like that is greatly escalated by playing a character like Diana eight times a week. Yeah. See, so you're saying we're seeing this like unhinged actor from the craft work that she's doing. I love that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like she, or maybe she's she's just like that. <laughs> well, that's what but that's what I'm saying. I think she was already there because of the way that she's able to like tap in. Uh-huh. But then you play that, Diana and then it like goes to a whole other level. And then you start getting the peppermint twists YouTube videos. Do you remember those? No. It's this is the YouTube video of her from 20, 2009 after winning the Tony Award. And she's just kind of like jiving, going twist, twist, peppermint, twist, twist, twist. Do you want to look it up right now so you know yeah, what I'm talking about? Absolutely. It's a minute and a half of her doing that. What? Twist, twist, peppermint, twist, 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 twist. <laughs> so why? No what, one knows. Is she just did this at home? Yeah, I think so. This is her character work. Right. Like, talk about leaving it on the stage. I don't think she did. I, I, and I adore her for that. That, that has got to be... Exhausting. Ta- exhausting. Just quite taxing. Yeah. And, you know, when, when I saw her, it, uh, it was the last stop for her. She, she didn't move on. It was her. She wasn't going on after that. Uh, she was being replaced by someone. Uh, but by someone who I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I was like, I'm a theater musical theater fan, not a historian. I was so intimidated uh, coming on here. But they, but it was just she gave everything. No, she she rings herself dry. Yes, every single performance, even the the, Tony the point that she might not even be able to sing by the end of the show. Yeah. And like, once again, no shade. That is the type of performer that she she is. And she's willing to go through on stage publicly for everyone to see. Uh, we've seen the self-destruction of celebrities, you know, that go through that. That's why so many turn to drugs or um, drinking, so like abusing substances. And Absolutely. You're totally right. If you're doing the job that well, like you really are going to be affected by it. So that's a really good call on that peppermint twist. It's probably exactly what we're seeing here. Yeah. And and bless her. And bless her for it. Bless her for it. Okay. Now that we've talked about all that, let's go through the show, shall we? Yeah. Okay. So the show starts. And (laughs) I have seen so many productions of this show, Ryan. Mm Mm-hmm. There was a production of Next Normal at East West Players, which is uh, an Asian American focused theater company in Los Angeles. Hmm. By far, over Broadway, over every other production I've seen, this production is my favorite. Oh, wow. What, I, just uh, have, I have to give a shout out. What uh, made it that? Uh, first of all, it was really interesting because uh, Dee Dee Magno Hall, who was in the Mickey Mouse Club, like the new Mickey Mouse Club with Britney Spears, huge fan, <laughs> uh, played Diana. And she's she's an incredible performer, incredible voice. Her real-life husband, Clifton Hall, 
I believe they met on Wicked, was playing Dan. So you have a real-life married couple playing these roles. And then there was just a humility and honesty about the production and about family that I really felt was brought to life in a new way because of the cultural diversity. Uh, The way that Ohana and family and everything is represented in Asian and Pacific Island cultures uh, resonated in a very beautiful way for me um, Mm. in that production. I love Um, that. And it, it just goes to show that once again, that I feel like this show will stand the test of time because the because different cultures, different casting choices, different types of productions can bring whole new layers to it. You know. <clears throat> um, that being said, so the show opens, <laughs> and I think the reason that that came up for me is because when I think of the show now, I think of that production. Yeah. So shout out East West players. We meet Diana, who is this mother. It's like the middle of the night. It's like three a.m., and she sees her son sneaking in the house yeah her teenage son and she's like where have you been i've been worried all night and then they hear her husband his dad kind of stirring and coming downstairs and she's like quick hide i don't want your dad to see you he'll be so upset so then he leaves the dad comes in is like babe you okay she's like absolutely go upstairs i'll be up in a minute we'll have sex he's like oh okay then this is all like happening in the middle of the night. Then uh, her daughter, Natalie, comes in and she is wired and stressed out because she has 14 different projects and book reports and performances coming up. And she doesn't have any time to do it all. And Diana's like, chill out, babe. You need to do something for yourself like me. I'm going to go have sex with your father. So like right from the get go. <laughs> the first time we meet this family is like in the middle of the night when quote unquote normal people are supposed to be asleep. And yet it still feels totally relatable because it's all relationship based. This gives way to this opening number called another, uh, it's just another day, right? Just An, another uh, day. Just, in which we're, you know, seeing this average family dealing with all of the things that you would assume any average family would deal with. Uh, the kids are going to school. Diana, at the end of the number, starts making sandwiches. And this gives way to like this kind of manic episode where she's not only making two or three sandwiches, which is all that she would need to. She's making six or seven on the ground and they're all spread out. And she doesn't realize she's doing it until all of a sudden she does. And everyone is, has stopped and they see her. And we as an audience realize this isn't normal, what's really going on in this family. Mm-hmm. Now, when it was written in 2009, uh, or at least when it opened on Broadway in 2009, the diagnosis that was given to Diana was that she is bipolar depressive with delusional episodes. Now, the science behind mental illness has is so new and continues to change so much that even though it was only in 2009, Technically, she would be diagnosed differently today. They would now diagnose Diana as bipolar with psychotic features, hmm. which refers to like the different hallucinations that she experiences. Mm-hmm. I think this is a great opportunity to talk a little bit about what bipolar is and what the diagnosis is, because yeah. I didn't know and I took the I took the opportunity to study a little bit. As far as I understand, there are two types of bipolar, right? Mm-hmm. Bipolar one is all about the manic highs. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. That in order to be considered bipolar one, you need to have high, high states of mania and, and they can be all sorts of different things. Usually it means you're making bad decisions. And then that is coupled with depression. Now in bipolar two, it's mainly depression. In fact, bipolar two is often misdiagnosed as depression mm. because it tends to be the main symptom. Yeah, I think is, and then depression is sort of easier to see the manic yeah. states. You you know you can excuse that kind of stuff away from behavior. Not to mention, highly productive people with mm-hmm. lots of energy mm-hmm. are lauded and praised in our society, right? Yeah. So look how productive I'm being. I'm doing this and this and this and this. And it isn't until they start making the decisions that are ultimately harmful to their lives uh, and other people's well-being that you start realizing that it might be a state of mania. Mm-hmm. So with Diana's diagnosis, they uh, take her to her doctor because obviously whatever medicine she's on or you know, sort of cognitive therapies mm-hmm. aren't working. In the meantime, though, we we uh, hear from Natalie, who is the daughter, mm-hmm. and she is practicing her piano, and she sings this great song, basically saying everything at in ho- at home is insane. So it's always nice to come back here to the piano where everything is crisp and clear, and I know how long to hold this note, and I mm-hmm. can play Mozart. Now, the irony there is that Mozart wasn't exactly the most. <laughs> mentally healthy person in the world that being said do you i know that you said that you were an angsty teenager do you connect with this oh absolutely i think i was gonna say too this is my favorite song in the entire show is everything else oh for sure and why is that well i think honestly it's beautifully sung uh i think it's just but just the idea of that angsty teen of like, I'm going to get out of here. I'm, I'm gone early and just working everything towards like getting out of your parents' control and, and really becoming yourself. Yeah, I mean, and, and thinking about it like this, it's like maybe she's uh, is exhibiting a little bit of uh, OCD tendencies by... Fair enough, uh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Uh, by escaping that way. There's just something about the song. I, I'm probably going to say that that's my favorite song too, and that's my favorite song too, a couple more times. But but this one is one of my go-to. It just the 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 story that she tells, the the pain in her voice, and and one of the moments that really rings true to me is what you just mentioned. And this is kind of what the whole plot is about: is finding that that mixture of medicine. Mm. My sister's going through it right now. It's like that. That is very true. Like that sort of thing is like, it's constantly about, I don't think this combination of- What's the cocktail? Yeah, because there's 16 different drugs that my, my sister right now is taking, you wow. know? And it's like, okay, and my dad's saying, well, you know, we gotta, we gotta change that. And like, he's speaking from experience, but no one's listening to him, right? But it's <laughs> like, you can't just stop. It's like, these are like, because you're, you're counteracting the side effects. That's what 14 of them are. Only like a couple are for actually, you know, treating the disorder. But And to your point, here are a list of the medicines that they talk about in Next to Normal. Ambien, Ativan. So you have to sing it if you're going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> and some of these I might not know how to pronounce. Buspar? Buspar? Depa, Depakote? <laughs> Depakote? I'm like doing Spanish. Yeah. In, uh, interpreted that um, <laughs> clonopin 
Paxil, Prozac, Xanax, Zoloft. There are so many. And I I mean, I do think that what you're talking about and also the song, which is kind of where we're at in the story, my uh, my pharmaceutical boyfriend. Um, yeah. Psychopharmacologist. <laughs> my, yeah, my psychopharmacologist. Exactly. <laughs> um, which is a, a fun, I'm calling it fun. It, it seems so weird. So like tru- Truly, like the way that they were able to hit the tone on the show is is pretty remarkable because even talking about it, I'm having a hard time hit, like finding the tone. Um, yeah, it is. It, but this song specifically was one of the moments that I had made a note of that I wanted to talk about. And it's the, the oh, that's very sweet, Doctor, but my husband's waiting in the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, she's always, <laughs> she's kind of flirting with this dude who's giving her all of her pills because they, it's almost like they have a more intimate relationship than even she does with her husband. He knows so much information yeah. and is completely in control of what she feels or doesn't. But that moment specifically stood out to me. And I don't know if that this is what you got, but I just remember like she, that's where you see she's crazy. She is oh. just nuts. Like in the, the production I saw, the doctor was just like, what? What? <laughs> And, and and so like getting that vibe, it's just like heartbreaking because that is what it's like. You're having a completely normal conversation and then they say something where you're like, oh, you are in outer space right now. Like wow. you yeah. are not here. That was a moment that I was like. <gasps> wow. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Getting that mixture is like a huge part of dealing with it. And so they did it so beautifully when they're all singing and the harmonies and the exactly. Fast. And it's like a waltz and the, like a lilting waltz back and forth. Uh, gorgeous. My favorite part of this whole scene where they're trying to find the right cocktail, you know, she keeps coming back to the doctor and tells him what she's feeling And at the end of the song, which is like seven weeks later of trying all of these different drugs, she says, I don't feel like myself. I don't feel anything. And that's the moment that he says, patient stable. Yeah. In order for there to be success, (laughs) the patient can't feel like themselves anymore. In fact, they can't really feel anything. And then you're like, all right, now we're getting somewhere. Yeah. And then at what cost? They're saying the only way you're worthy of existing in this society is if we take every bit of who you are away Ooh, my heart i felt that one dang yeah now what's really interesting in the way that they constructed the musical is that all of this is then put right next to natalie's experience uh Mm -hmm. the daughter meeting this boy named henry who seems to be like the complete opposite to her the the yin to her yang and is a stoner. In fact, he won't touch anything pharmaceutical. He only wants to smoke like the all natural <laughs> drugs. Yeah. Same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a really complex nuanced situation because he's introducing this different outlook on life that like look, you don't have to hold everything so tightly. You don't have to go to Mozart every time you feel out of control maybe if we connect, like I'm digging you, maybe we're a perfect match for each other. Mm -hmm. And she's very resistant to it. I think it really is just to show that struggle of Natalie, like having this kind of good thing right in front of her face and just too afraid by seeing what's going on with her mother, like echoing kind of like what I had mentioned before of I can really relate to that at that Mm -hmm. age. 
mm-hmm. of being like, that could be me. Like that's what, what can I, which, what am I, how am I supposed to navigate that yeah. as an angsty teen who's discovering myself thinking I could have this thing and I, I seeing exactly how it all plays out. I think she even sings that. It's like, right. I've seen this story and I don't want to be a part of it and shutting yourself off completely. Is there like a point where if it hasn't come up, it probably won't? Yeah, it's 18 to 25 uh, is okay. usually when um, you start noticing it and it starts affecting you. Uh, but it, it, for some people, it could be much younger too. But, you know, and it's things like the the heavy drug usage and stuff. And like my father's was, uh, the, his very first episode was he was a teenager and the whole family left and he broke into the liquor cabinet and he drank a little too much because, you know, he was a kid and didn't know and that triggered his first episode really wow and so like it, i think it was definitely on purpose showing her go down that path what i think is also smart is that they start out much more shallow much more superficial where it seems like she's just embarrassed of her family right yeah it's it's kind of an image thing like as she and henry get closer he wants to meet her family and natalie's like no you don't And so she's refusing to let him come over. That's when Diana sings, I Miss the Mountains, because I think on Mm -hmm. some level she's realizing this isn't life. This isn't living. That song is the driving force of Diana here. And, and, and that, that is why. So growing up, this is the reason why I didn't have a father in my life is because you get so medicated that you know it's not working there's a ton of side effects you're gaining a ton of weight you look 10 years older than you are from just the trying to treat it and then you're getting more uh, pills to treat the symptoms of the first medicines and and you're still not feeling yourself and then you're a total complete zombie and uh you know th- and so i keep you know my dad would flush the pills down the toilet and then go go off and then have episodes and it's all about like you get to the point where you're like i'm fine now I'm cured, like I'm good. And so I don't want to take these pills anymore because like I'm very stable and I'm not feeling. So I've got the, everything under control. Let's just secretly not take my pills. And that's when the episodes happen. And when yeah. else does that happen in musical theater? Yeah. It, well done. Well done, guys. Seriously. <laughs> um, now at the end of I Miss the Mountains, like you said, she flushes all the medicine down the toilet. Uh, her son, Gabe, sees her and basically signs off on it. She's, he's like, look, I appreciate you trying to be brave and wanting to feel something again. So it seems like they're in on this little secret together. Yeah. Now explain this to me because you you kind of talked about it, but I think I might need a little bit more explanation. All of this medicine is to keep episodes at bay because it's not it's not like it's all the time constantly. Right. It just creeps in and out of the day. And so it's not like, oh, you know, the medicine wore off. Right. So like, yeah, it does just sort of fade in and out like that. Because once she flushes down the medication, Mm -hmm. she goes a a time without having an episode and everybody thinks that everything's fine. In fact, the dad sings the song about everything's good, everything's good. And he more than anything wants this normal life. He wants everyone to feel what it's like to be in a loving, normal family, Um, Mm -hmm. sometimes delusionally so. Natalie has finally allowed Henry to come over uh, to meet the family. They're all sitting down to dinner. And then right at the end of dinner, 
Diana brings out a birthday cake and all of the candles are lit. And Henry's like, whose birthday is it? And Natalie says, it's my brother's birthday. And uh, Henry says, I didn't know you had a brother. And she says, I don't, he's dead. And that's the moment we realize that the son that we've been seeing go through the house and interact with Diana is a teenage version of her son who died when he was a baby at eight months. <sighs> yeah. Following it along, Singer kind of struggle with stuff and then be like, holy fuck, it is much worse than we thought. Beautiful. Like, it's not just about personality. It's not just about feelings. It's it's about psychosis. It's about... Like Exactly. Beautifully done. That's yeah. exactly what it's like. Somebody walks into the room with a birthday cake for somebody who died. <laughs> wow. It's gorgeous stuff. Dang, buddy. So then the dad sings this song called He's Not Here, which ugh, that this one wrecks me. Um, yeah, you can't not listen to, you have to listen to He's Not Here and You Don't Know It. You got to listen right. together. <laughs> they go together so well. He, he seems like such a patient person and he just wants, like I said, maybe to a fault, just wants everybody to be happy. But he's, you know, saying, look, he's not here, but we will get you back on the meds. Everything's going to be fine. And then she breaks out into this song called You Don't Know. And I want to read these first lyrics because it's just brilliant. Do you wake up in the morning and need help to lift your head? Do you read obituaries and feel jealous of the dead? It's like living on a cliffside, not knowing when you'll dive. Do you know, do you know what it's like to die alive? Yeah. That is so raw and, and honest. But she's saying, you don't know what I'm going through. And you never will. And so where do we go from here? And, yeah. and I think we get into these places where it's like, you don't know and I don't want your empathy. Yeah, exactly. And I, I not relate personally, but I've, through my experience, seen that of like pushing people away. Like I, it's almost more frustrating because like they can't explain it to you. Like you can't ever know that. It seems like Dan, I don't want to say that there's like a right and a wrong way to approach the situation because it's heaven knows it's so different for everybody. The way that he's going about it in terms of like, I will be there for you. I love you. I want you to be happy. All fine and good. But the poison that he's adding to that is, I will fix it. Yeah. I will fix you. I will fix this. And that doesn't work. Well, yeah. I mean, how would you react to that? And it's like, I don't need to be fucking fixed. Right. right? So Natalie is, of course, just so embarrassed that this all went down the first time that Henry comes over to meet the family. This is when she sings... Superboy and the Invisible Girl, which is basically saying my mom's favorite child isn't even real. And how on, how on earth am I supposed to live up to a perfect child that doesn't even exist? I don't. And so therefore I'm invisible. Mm -hmm. It's a good song, though. That's a great song. All right. So what they decide to do is instead of going back to the doctor who prescribed all the pills, they're going to go to this new dude named Dr. Madden. And he's been recommended to Dan by everybody, which of course makes Diana feel super self-conscious. Like, wait, you're, what, you're talking to people about my condition. Mm -hmm. And so they go to Dr. Madden when she meets him, she starts to see him as a scary rock star. Like mm -hmm. she'll have these fits, these like little episodes where he's 
he's like a total Mick Jagger rock star. And Which I love. I love that device. Like that that puts it in a now we're in a musical. You know, you you can tell this story like this without it being a rock opera. Well, and after the birthday cake moment, we need a little bit of a release. And so like they do sneak these little moments where they can find humor in the trauma to yeah. to keep everybody from leaving at intermission. Um yeah. Dr. Madden, his approach is going to be, yes, drugs, but also therapy. They're going to work a lot through hypnosis because at this point, we still don't know how Gabe, the son, died. Nobody talks about it. And so they're hoping that maybe or Dr. Madden's hoping by going this therapy route, they can maybe uncover some truths that might solve some of the problems going on in the brain. Mm hmm. Now, I you've been very brave and shared, so I will share that I've definitely been to therapy much in my life, and I highly recommend it. I think everybody should go to therapy. Oh, yeah. I've got it right after this. <laughs> Do you really? Yeah. Maybe it's a good idea. <laughs> the, yeah. This is a journey. Um, my therapist actually told me that she has two funds for her children, a college fund and a therapy fund because she knows that her children will need it. it. It was such a great moment for me to realize, like, the therapist kids are going to need therapy. The first time I went to therapy was to not be gay. So that was interesting. I, like, checked myself into, <laughs> into like, a, a, a therapy. therapy. It was a therapist attached to my church. And I just kind of walked in and was like, hey, so I've been gay for a little bit. It's not working for me. Can I, can we, and I try something else? I hear there's a workbook. And she was like, uh, kind of half-heartedly now that I look back on it. She's like, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess we can go through a workbook if you'd like. So there was this workbook called Evergreen, which I think is hilarious because that's also a Barbara Streisand song. That um, <laughs> was all about uh, like discovering where your homosexual tendencies come from. And it was called SSA, same-sex attraction, instead of being gay. Holy shit. So I, so I went through that for like... Uh, like three to four months. And I mean, introspection is always good. So there were things that I, I took from it. But the problem that I always had with it was that like, I, I knew all of the answers I was supposed to have. And that's not therapy. Like it was all about looking at my inner life through the filter of doctrine. And I knew doctrine so well that I already knew the answers. So there wasn't actual any discoveries that I made. It wasn't until I went to a different therapist and she was like, I don't have answers. I'm not interested in telling you answers. Let's just talk. And I was like, oh, this is much scarier. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's when I really started getting a lot out of, out of my therapy experience. Anyway, oh, I, heavy. let me have my chocolate milk break hold, please. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh man. But I say that because I want people to not feel ashamed about going to therapy yeah. And also to realize that you can go to several therapists and see what's like the right fit for you because everybody will have a different approach. And if one doesn't work for you, then find a different one, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You got to be able to do that trust and even talking to friends about their therapists. If we, if we let, let each other know how our sessions are going, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you can tell like, oh, you need to find a new one. <laughs> <laughs> like they, they really should my therapist would never say something like that like they're right. giving you they're giving you advice yeah 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 
therapy is a lot of, about what you talk about and what you don't talk about. Now, mm. this other moment that I was bringing up earlier, I think my other favorite moment that really hits a chord is Dr. Madden's line, that's the first time you've mentioned Natalie in weeks of therapy. Ooh. <laughs> oh. That's, that's heartbreaking. Because, you know, watching that through my experience as well, where I'm the Natalie, mm-hmm. and we're seeing her be angsty teen, like feeling invisible. And then it's like this moment of being like, yeah, she's right. You are completely invisible. <laughs> Mom does, never even mentioned you. Like yeah. this show, y'all. Yeah. She's working with her, with this doctor going through these hypnoses, trying to get to the root of, of Gabe, the son. And he appears and sings the song, I'm Alive. Now, this character, I think, is the most difficult character in the whole show. Because A, he's not real. B, he's supposed to look like a perfect all-American boy. We totally skipped the fact that he's like shirtless out of the shower in like the first scene. So like that you can tell that he's like buff and pretty and everything. Number three, he's supposed to sing crazy, crazy high. And then he (laughs) has this weird relationship with his mom where he's kind of an antagonist. And there's almost like a sexual tension between them where he's very alluring and seductive. Because the more that she follows him, the more she follows him into darkness and illness. It's a complex character to play and direct. And anybody who does it well, kudos. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the first act, there's this song in which, once again, the, the son is luring Diana from the world as we know it. Uh, it's actually even called There's a World. And she tries to kill herself. The next thing we hear is Dr. Madden saying there are multiple razor wounds to her wrists and forearms. His ideas haven't worked. That means that the next step is electroshock therapy. Mm-hmm. And he proposes it to both Dan and Diana, and they have the exact same reaction that I did, which is, this is still a thing. Yeah. And what I don't think I realize is that nobody even understands how or why it works, which which is crazy. It's the amount of electricity that you light a light bulb with, like a 100-watt light bulb, I think. And it creates seizures in your brain in which you kind of are doing a control-alt-delete reboot. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And it's not without side effects, but the idea is that by rebooting the system, you can slowly but surely treat the psychosis. Does that sound right? Yeah, that that, that sums it up. (laughs) But very, very dangerous. Incredibly dangerous. The whole family is kind of against it, but then one by one, they, they realize that maybe this is the only resort. And to be honest, ECT or electroshock therapy they only do it when it there is no other option. Mm-hmm. She sings this song called Didn't I See This Movie where she realizes that she's like trapped in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or Francis, that movie with Jessica Lange. Have you seen that one? That one's horribly depressing. But all of these different movies in which it probably did not help the stigma of mental illness at all, but revealed the really barbaric ways that they used to be treated. So uh, on some level, she's like, wait, am I in this movie now? And we go to intermission knowing that she just got her first round of electroshock therapy. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Hold on, more chocolate milk. 
and a cute little juice box type vibe. I love that. It's great because then you don't have to refrigerate it. It doesn't spoil. It's great for like, you know, food storage, emergency preparedness. And self-care. And self-care. Exactly. So Act 2 opens with Natalie and Diana having parallel experiences. Diana is going through electroshock therapy in order to deal with her stuff. Natalie is going to clubs, which also has bright (laughs) electricity type phenomena uh, in order to deal with all of her stress. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. Yeah, she's doing the bad girl act. Much to Henry's... I think guilt, but also dismay because he's like that. This isn't the girl that I was into. And this isn't what I've been telling you to do in terms of lightening up. Diana comes out of her electroshock therapy and she has lost her entire memory. And so she goes home and she doesn't remember her husband. She doesn't remember her daughter. Natalie's like, awesome. I'm even more invisible than I was before. Exactly. Which is the worst thing that could happen to Natalie. The doctor tells them to start going through photo books, old memories to try and build this life back into her memory. Yeah, this is where Dan starts plugging in his story versus the true story. And he even asks the doctor, he's like, should I even bring up Gabe? You know, because obviously that was a trauma that triggered the illness to begin with. Mm -hmm. And uh, he says, yes, you should bring up your son. And the time comes and he actively chooses to not tell her the truth. She keeps feeling like there's this piece of her memory that's missing. And he's like, nope, this is all it. This is, you know, you got a daughter, you got me, you got a house. Everything's fine. And the photoshopping hardly even shows. (laughs) (laughs) That I mean, I, I, I don't have an exact experience with memory loss or ECT, but the correcting that Natalie does in this song of like, actually, it wasn't like that. Uh, that, mm. yeah, that's, that was our cat you ran over. It was like, this song really, really affects me of like, wow. like the truth. Like when she's saying, actually, the truth is dad. Like it's not as good. She's a bit of a negative Nancy, but we had a moment with a, a cat that died uh, that was around uh, episode two. So even right down to literally the cat and this, it just, oh, every time I listen to it. And it's such a fun song too. It like, is, Song of cute. Forgetting. It's it's so cute. It's fun, playful, but also has a lot of truth in it. Yeah, absolutely. When when Natalie points out those things, it's, the, there are specific moments where it's like, yep, that's exactly what it's like. It, it sounds like when you have such an intimate relationship with someone with mental illness, Every single memory can be colored many different ways. Yeah, like you can focus on the negative or you can, you know, forgive and understand. So I think there we're seeing a lot of that struggle. One of the items in this box of memories that they keep going through is a little music box. The music box is a very big symbol of Gabe, of the son, because it Mm -hmm. was like, you know, the music that they would play for the baby. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the thing that locks Gabe back into the picture. And so he sings uh, this little section called Aftershocks, which is when he really starts appearing as like... Sinister. Yeah, yeah, sinister, kind of like the the bad guy of this whole piece. When she talks to her doctor about it, he casually mentions, and have you talked about your son yet? And she goes, my son. And the doctor goes, oh, I think you need to talk more to your husband. And so then she comes back both bewildered and bereft, (laughs) That's a little mm-hmm. shot of 
horrors reference um, <laughs> to talk to her husband about like, what aren't you telling me? And he's back to, it's going to be good, right? No, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Finally, Diana pushes Dan to the point of talking about Gabe. And that's when we as an audience hear what actually happened. He was an eight-month-old baby and was crying constantly. And they kept taking him to the doctor. And the doctors would say, he has gas. And then it turns out that he had like an intestinal blockage that was went undiagnosed. And he just died as an eight-month-old baby. Uh, that song, How Could I Ever Forget? That's 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 definitely what I go to for for the cry. Yeah. And it's the word they don't say. Yeah. Gorgeous. Those weeks full of joy, then a moment of dread. Someone simply said, Your child is. Oh. And do you know what I love about this show is the way that they sneak in little pieces of medical information without it feeling super expositional. Mm-hmm. In this case, She says something like, I had a doctor tell me that once I hit four months of grieving, then it it should be medicated after losing my son. After my child died, I only had four months to get over it. Otherwise, then I needed to get on medication. And the doctor's like, it's only a suggestion. She's like, exactly. I, I think it's safe to say that once Diana decides to not go back on meds, she realizes that whatever she does, she needs to figure it out on her own and she needs to leave the family. So she packs up a suitcase and uh, leaves her husband, mm-hmm. who is, I think, devastated because he feels like, from his point of view, he did everything that he could. Uh, I love that this song is called So Anyway. Yeah. So anyway, like right. it's so important, but it's, you know, in the first line, so anyway, I'm leaving. It's not called I'm leaving. Yeah. It's how we talk about things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's too much to bear. So I'm just going to make this as casual as possible. And when she leaves, he has this moment where he sees Gabe. And it's not like, it's not in a hallucination way like she went through, but I think it's meant for us to see that as much as she has dealt with the trauma, it was trauma for him. Yeah. Um, and uh, him not looking. And even in the end there, he's like, go away. I don't want to look at that. And it, it's him, the whole show is just packing that stuff on top. And that's why, you know, you can really see her choice to leave is like what she needed because he was not helping. Everybody wanted the same thing, but was going about it in a dysfunctional way that wouldn't lead to what they wanted before she packs up and leaves. Totally. She has a little sit down talk with her daughter, which is probably the first and only time we really see this in the show, a heart to heart for them. Mm -hmm. And this is where the name of the show comes from. Diana says, we wanted to give you a normal life, but I realize I have no clue what that is. And Natalie sings, I don't need a life that's normal. That's way (laughs) too far away. But something next to normal would be okay. I mean, that sentiment, like that rings so true. It's like, like there is a normal, like there is one way to do it. Like there is like the, the perfect husband, the perfect wife and the perfect house with the perfect daughter. Mm-hmm. The cards are stacked against them yeah. with her illness. And so just that, like Natalie, the whole time she's just wanted some, she wanted what's real from them. 
and both of them are avoiding they they all need to be in therapy right they're all avoiding what's really going on and, and pushing those feelings down and how they actually feel about it and they go to escape with drugs they go to escape by well i have the answers we'll do a new doctor we'll do a new cocktail of medicine and yeah it's like i guess that's where they're leaving it on it's like avoiding it break you send it to a breaking point i love what you said because it's so true what's more important is to find something real as opposed to something that's fake but it looks like it's supposed to yeah and that goes for every aspect of life mm-hmm. and everything in your career in your friends your relationships and your family life absolutely that's what we were saying. That's what therapy is about. It's coming through like your lifetime of feelings and emotions, but it's about identifying like w- what is happening and how that's okay and how you're enough exactly how you are. Obviously, you, if, you're, if you're having um, like a psychosis or you're going through delusional episodes, like you, we curb that and we look for a way to help and we're still learning about that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, short of being dangerous, it's about accepting exactly where we're at right now in our lives and knowing that that's okay. Now I want to know, okay, so we've got the last song. So yeah, tell me what you think about this. I, what is the history of this too? Because was this added for Broadway audiences to be like, Oh, here's a nice uplifting song at the end. Uh, No, I mean, originally the finale was called let there be light when it, Mm -hmm. you know, first premiered and like, 2008 and then once it came to Broadway in 2009 it was called Light and I think that it is easy to to say that this is like a happy ending song but I think that they were smart and that it sounds like a happy ending song but when you look at it it is not (laughs) you know what I mean so Diana leaves she goes to live with her parents for a little bit Natalie and Henry have reconciled and uh, have realized they actually might be a, a pretty perfect match for each other and uh dan the husband is learning what he even wants in life if it if it isn't about fixing his wife Mm -hmm. so in each of their own ways they're looking for some sort of light and each of them has a verse all of which are are so revealing diana says day after day wishing all our cares away trying to fight the things we feel but some hurts never heal some ghosts are never gone but we go on and then natalie says day after day give me clouds and rain and gray give me pain if that's what's real it's the price we pay to feel you know everybody is um staring their pain right in the face and being like i guess this is part of life and so um, I need to live with it instead of doing something to avoid it, which is not living. Yeah. What it's, do you think? It's a hopeful message. I don't know. I, I've always thought like I wanted it to end before that song. Oh, interesting. I've always wanted it, but that, that's my like, <laughs> fuck Broadway <laughs> audiences attitude of, it, of like, like I love how it, like she leaves and like there i had such a reaction of like hating her for that mm-hmm. and i felt like ending there would just be too much for a broadway audience it, it, it's so i worked at trevor project for a while too and um trevor project is a lgbt youth crisis counseling organization and uh in the time there like they what we say is that you know you never we hated the it gets better campaign because it's like well for some people it does not Mm -hmm. and so 
like having that kind of uh, oh there will be light it's like honestly it just it, the only thing that rings is like uh, okay this is this feels like it's added here because somebody was like are you fucking crazy <laughs> some producers like do you know how much money i have on this thing you can't end with that song <laughs> broadway audiences need some hope at the end which i totally see mm-hmm. But as far as like, you know, I want to see the workshops of this to where like the ending was literally like, well, you know, I couldn't figure it out, but uh, fuck you, Dan. And you know, I kind of fuck you too, Nat. And <laughs> and then the end. And then the end. Yeah. And so, I mean, in, in personal experience, that's just sort of what it's more like. There's, there's not like, oh, there's hope. There's hope. I, I would push back a little bit and say mm-hmm. that just from in, in terms of musicals, the reason that we care or are invested in musicals is because the characters are revealing something from the inside that can only be expressed through music. Right. Mm. And that's why musicals tend to be innately hopeful because Mm. if you are to express something from the inside out, it's usually a want or a hope or a desire, something not necessarily happiness or Mm. optimism, but something hopeful. And so I think that just from like a, an art form place, that's why musical theater tends to be more hopeful than other art forms is because innately they have to be expressing something yeah. from their inner world. And, and that's really well put about go ahead. Like why musicals are musicals, why they're singing. That's a really excellent point. And so I guess I just want to see the sequel. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I want to see the sequel where it's Henry and Natalie and just see like what patterns and cycles are still going and what ones they've been able to break up. Oh, yeah. Oh, heck yeah. Yay, we made it. Oh, my gosh. That was exhausting. I've done like over 50 episodes of this of this uh, podcast. And this one was one of the more harrowing, uh, exhausting ones. And I'm so grateful that you did it. It's a fun musical. It, (laughs) It is rock music. And that's what it is, that it's entertaining. On top of all of this, like, really deep, heavy stuff that we've been talking about, it's still entertaining somehow. Diana is a hoot. She's hilarious. She's so funny. <laughs> and in the best ways, like, like making light of the trauma, they really do well with it. Yeah. I mean, but... that's my style. Are you kidding me? If I can't laugh at my trauma, yeah, no gracias. No. No good. You gotta, you gotta find that light. Find that light in the dark. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you, Ryan. I really appreciate you doing this episode with me for being brave. And I really respect you for everything that you were able to share today. I know that there are a lot of listeners out there who are going to be incredibly grateful for it as well. As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musical podcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on social media on Twitter and Instagram at a musical podcast. And while you're at it, head over to our T Public store where we have great designs based on episodes past and present. Ryan, how do we follow you and everything you're up to? Uh, you can find me on Instagram. That's a direct link into me as an actor uh, and person at Ryan Leslie Fisher. But uh, my content, if you want some entertainment uh, on YouTube, it's Enemies of Dorothy. And on TikTok, uh, it's at Dandy and Friends. Fantastic. Everybody out there, catch me, I'm falling.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 